0: Christians have always tried to understand and articulate the relationship that we have as believers with the world around us, with the culture around us. That uh, topic has always been something I've been interested in personally. The Bible talks specifically about two separate kingdoms the kingdom of God, and then describes the kingdom of this world. You can see at least one of these kingdoms in Ephesians chapter 2. At the beginning of that chapter, you read about the kingdom of this world, which is something that you and I are all born into. You are born a citizen of this kingdom, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And Of course, Paul goes on here. You're probably familiar with that passage. But the difficulty in these two kingdoms, these two uh, separate entities, is that they don't have clear physical boundaries. You know, we're not not talking about the United States and Canada here where there's a, a clear border and a boundary and you know when you're in one and when you're in the other. In many ways, these kingdoms... Sort of overlap. And the reality is that for you and I as believers, sometimes we're not sure in which one we're operating, whether it's the the system of this world or as the kingdom of God. And they, they sort of overlap and we live in both in some sense simultaneously. We come in contact with the kingdom of this world all the time and we exist in the culture around us. And yet at the same time, we're followers of Christ, we're citizens of his kingdom. Maybe there's no one that understood this better than Augustine, who lived in the Roman Empire in the late fourth and early fifth century. If you're not familiar with Augustine, he's one of the greatest theologians of the church. You should read, if you ever get the chance to, his uh, autobiography, The Confessions. It's a classic of Christian literature, but he was educated as a, as a Roman, well-educated as a Roman citizen, and he saw the value of, of a lot of what he learned. Once he became a believer in Christ, it's not like he put all of that away and said it's not worth anything. He saw the value in much of what he'd learned as a Roman citizen, but when he came to Christ, he also began to see the contradictions in the Roman worldview and way of life. He was able to identify how this way of living actually didn't make sense. There were contradictions in it. And so as he thought about this and and developed his understanding of what it means to live as a Christian in a worldly culture and a worldly environment, he wrote this book called The City of God. And in that book, he describes the differences in these two kingdoms, the city of God and the city of man. In the first part of the book, He critiques the Roman culture of his time. He points out all the inconsistencies and, in many ways, the absurdities of the way people live their lives in the broader culture and in the world without Christ. And then in the second part of the book, he carefully walks the reader through the biblical timeline, through the biblical story, which is the story of God's unfolding kingdom, the one that you and I are now citizens of, which culminates through Jesus Christ in the eternal state. And so he paints this very vivid picture of these two kingdoms. So this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, you're living in two kingdoms at the same time, the, the world system, the culture around you, and then you're also living as a citizen of God's kingdom. And it's really important for you and I to understand how those two kingdoms relate to each other and how we should relate as followers of Christ to both of them. Now, I'm not promising this morning that as we study this passage that we're going to be able to figure out all of what it means to live faithfully as Christians in this culture in America in the 21st century, but... This will help us to clarify some principles and some truths about the world around us, about the culture we live in and how we should relate to that culture and things we should expect from the culture around us. They shouldn't catch us by surprise. That's what Jesus addresses here with his disciples as he's preparing them for his departure. So in this passage, John 15, starting in verse 18 all the way through chapter 16 and verse 4, here's what we're going to see. Three certainties about our ongoing relationship with the world. Three certainties about our ongoing relationship with the world. Once again, Jesus is talking to his disciples, so a lot of this is specifically and primarily applicable to them. He's preparing them, but it also makes great application for us because we're supposed to read our Bibles that way and make application to our lives. And here's the first certainty. It's the reality of the situation. Union with Christ, and I've very specifically chosen those words, union with Christ, our connection to him, guarantees the world's hatred of us. And this is in chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. So as I already said this morning, but just to remind you, we're in chapters 13 through 17, the upper room discourse. Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples the night before he dies on the cross, and he's preparing them for his departure. He's made that clear. He will make that clear again. He's getting them ready for him to physically die and then rise from the dead and then ascend to the Father and leave them without him. He's given them a whole bunch of encouragement. He's promised them the Holy Spirit as another helper. He's taught them to sacrificially love one another. That needs to be a primary way that they relate to one another. He's told them to abide in him, to cultivate that union, that connection that they have with him through the gospel. Abide in him as a branch abides in the vine. And when they do that, they will bear much fruit To God the Father and God the Son's glory. So now, in chapter 15 and verse 18, he sort of makes a pretty dramatic turn here in in his conversation with his disciples. Now he turns their attention to the world around them, to the culture around them that they are going to go out into after he has died and risen from the dead. Look at verse 18. If... The world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So in these chapters, Jesus has talked a lot about his union with the disciples, even after his physical departure, his connection spiritually through the Holy Spirit to them. And all the benefits, all the promises, all the good things that are going to come to them, come because of their relationship with him because of their connection with him what happens to him happens to them through the Holy Spirit coming to them so all of the benefits come to them and now he tells because of that relationship with him and now he tells them that look there are going to be some negative things that you need to be ready for and you need to expect because of your relationship and connection and union with me. He says here in verse 18, notice he uses the word if the world hates you. But he's, he's not saying this as if it's a possibility. He's saying it because it's going to be something they should expect to happen. In fact, when the Gospel of John was written, by the time the Gospel of John was written and would have been in circulation around the Roman Empire, The Christians who are getting the copy of this and reading it out loud in their churches, these are believers who have maybe known Christ for 10, 15, 20 years through various apostles' ministry, through some of the letters that they've received. And these are believers who have already suffered persecution. So they're reading this going, Yeah, if the world hates us, it absolutely hates us. And they've suffered the loss of property. Some of them maybe have even been martyrs, they've been marginalized pushed to the fringes of society because of their faith in Christ. Now, to really understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to do a a bit of a deep dive into this word that he uses, the world, here. This is a a word that is pretty common in the Apostle John's writing, and he uses this world, the the word—man, I'm going to trip that up over and over again— He uses this designation of world in his writings to refer to this sort of temporal system, all right? So it's a temporary system of unredeemed humanity that are all together in rebellion against God. Let me work that out a little bit. It's what happens, this system, the world, is what happens when you get a bunch of people who are living self-centered and sinful lives, living for themselves, and then, even though they're living for themselves, they get together and their sinfulness sort of all gets thrown into the pot together, and out of that comes this system that encourages their self-centeredness. It promotes living for self and living out your sinful desires. They create a system that promotes self-centeredness and then their continued involvement in sin props up this system further. That's what the world is. And it's important to remember that at the root of this is a matter of the heart. The world is a system. It's structures in society that are in place that encourage this way of living. But at the root of it, John says, are issues of the heart. In reality, the world is driven by affections, by desires, and by what you love. And John defines this for us in 1 John chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to put it on the screen. John gives us a definition of what he's talking about when he talks about the world. He tells them, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, right? Here we go. We're going to define this thing, this entity, this system that you should not love. The desires of the flesh, three things. The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What are these three desires or attitudes or perspectives or loves or dispositions that worldly people are driven by? First of all, the desires of the flesh. These are the wants and the values of unredeemed and fallen human life. So you take a human, you separate them from God, put them in rebellion against God, and you ask the question, what do they want? What are they living for? What do they love? That drives this world system, those wants and the desires of the flesh, of unredeemed humanity apart from Christ. The desires of the eyes are affections or desires motivated by the temporal things that one sees. So desires of the eyes, this is about the visible and temporal as opposed to the invisible and the eternal. It's getting fixated on the here and the now and what you can see and living life apart from what you can't see, apart from God's kingdom and what's invisible and what's eternal. The pride of life is when we boast in material possessions that sustain physical life here and now. Look, there's nothing wrong with having physical things, obviously. God has given those to us as a gift. But worldliness is when you boast in those things and they begin to dominate your loves and affections to the exclusion of eternal things. And so you put these three together, the lusts or desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, And you get a sinful, self centered focus on temporal life to the exclusion of God and eternity. And here's what happens verse 17, and the world, this system driven by these desires, is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Followers of Christ have a different set of values a different set of desires and loves and affections. And when you have a different want in your life, this puts you out of step with the system of the world. Look at verse 19, John 15. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Christians have been rescued out of the world because God, through Christ, has chosen us to be rescued out of the world. And now we have a different set of values. To be of the world here is to be characterized by the same values as the unredeemed system of humanity. But we are chosen out of the world, and now we have a way of life that is very different and is based in eternal things and not temporal things. And we've been chosen out of the the world by God's sovereign grace. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, With this language of being chosen out of the world and not being of the world, let me clarify something for you here, okay? Jesus did not choose us out of the world to sort of tuck us away like a fragile vase that has to be preserved. That's not what he's describing when he says we are separate from the world or we're chosen out of the world, To be chosen out of the world means we now have a new set of desires and a new way of life. If the world is characterized by its wants and desires, then we are now characterized by a different set of desires. It does not mean that we are to be out of contact with this worldly system that we live in. John 17. Jesus praying for his disciples says this, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Now this perspective I'm describing where we think as Christians that Our job is to stay as isolated as we can, to stay away from unbelievers, to stay away from the broader culture, to isolate ourselves, and then maybe we can just sort of keep our kids safe and hold on to the end and sort of stumble across the finish line. This is often a problem that pops up among Christians. This is not what Jesus is calling his disciples to at all. Instead, what he's doing here is he's telling them how it's going to be and he's strengthening them in order to send them out into a hostile world with a new and a different set of values and a different way of life. He's preparing them for what they're going to face and he's being straight up and honest with them. He doesn't give them rations and send them into the foxhole to try and survive. That's not how... Christians work. He equips them with what? With love and with the light of the gospel and he sends them into the darkness knowing that they will be despised because Jesus was despised. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me they will also persecute you. And then here's a wonderful promise. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus sends them out into the world with the truth of the gospel, knowing that because he was persecuted, they will be persecuted as well. You remember this Uh, quote that he gives here, something he said to them earlier. This is taken from John chapter 13. After he washes their feet, the Lord and Master washes the feet of the disciples. He says to them, you need to imitate me, just like I've done for you in providing this service to you and serving you in this tangible way. I want you to imitate my way of life. And he says the same thing applies here. The world hates me because of my values, because of my loves, And it's going to hate you when you are characterized by those same values and same loves. And with my departure, he's telling them, now the attention is going to turn from me to you. You are now going to be the object of hatred and of persecution. And the glorious part about the end of verse 20 is it's a promise that says, when you go out into this hostile world and when you proclaim my word... If, like some kept my word and some listened and some heard when I proclaim the truth, they're going to do the same thing when you proclaim the truth. And they're going to hear what you have to say, and they're going to respond in belief and in faith. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so, go out into the world, into the hostile world, and proclaim the truth, and some will hate you, and some will respond in repentance and faith And in that way, you will be like me, which is the way it should be. And so this sets the first certainty for you and I as we think about our relationship with the ongoing world. The reality is that the world is going to look down on us. The world is going to persecute Christians at times. The world is going to hate us. That's true because of our connection to Christ. And now Jesus gets a little more specific here in verses 21 to 25. So we have the reality of this. Now we have the reason why this works itself out the way it does. Because Christ's words and works bring condemnation to the world. This is the reason why we can expect persecution in the world. Look at verse 21 but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The world hates the followers of Christ when they live and act in line with the character and name of Jesus. That's what he means here. Now this last line of verse 21, because they do not know him who sent me. You're going to see this line repeated multiple times in this section, and this gives us the ultimate reason why the world responds the way it does to us and to the truths of Christianity. Behind it all is the fact that they just don't know God. They've not reckoned with the reality of the creator God and not listened to his word. There are even some people who claim to know God and yet still persecute his followers, And ultimately, they prove by that that they don't know God. So that's the big reason. But Jesus gets into two very specific reasons as to why persecution will come and why they despised him. The first of those major reasons is in verses 22 and 23. Look there. If I had not come and spoken to them they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Now, Jesus here doesn't mean that unbelievers would be free from sin if he hadn't come. That's not what he's saying when he says that if I had not come and spoken, they would not have been guilty of sin. What he's talking about here is that when the light pierces the darkness, it shows people just how sinful they are. Now they can see it. The world can see who they really are. It exposes the heart. And now the light has come into their world, into their reality, and they have rejected it, which increases their culpability and their darkness. Now they have no excuse for their sin because the truth of sin and of God's character has been made known. They are aware of the truth and continue in it. John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you while Jesus, Jesus is speaking these words when he's still on earth, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. This is why the world hates him, because he exposes the works that they do, exposes the sin. And it's not just because of his words that the broader culture hates the father and the son. Look at verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Think about the Gospel of John. What have we studied over the last several months? The first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John put on display the works of Jesus. All of these signs that he does point to the fact that he has been sent by God, the works testify to who he is. John 5.36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 10.25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, bear witness about me. But again, despite the clear revelation of who Christ is, the world has chosen to respond in unbelief and in persecution of him. You see that throughout this gospel. And this makes sense, right? If, if you are sinning and are guilty of sin and someone exposes your sin, there are two possible responses to that. You can respond in repentance and faith or You can deny that it's sin, and you can get mad at the one who's exposing it, and you can begin to hate them and persecute them for it. Those are the two options here when it comes to Jesus, and unfortunately, the world continues to take that second option. When Jesus came onto the scene, people responded with frustration and rejection, and that continues to happen as his followers proclaim his name. But none of that is unexpected by God, right? He knew that all of this worked exactly into his plan. Look at verse 25. But the the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This is all part of the expectation of the Messiah. You can see that in the word must there in verse 25. Their law must be fulfilled. The hatred of the world actually fulfills Scripture. How so? How how does this work itself out? Why does he use this language here of fulfillment of Scripture to describe this hatred of him? Well, this is a quote taken from Psalm 69. There are a couple of options, but I think it's Psalm 69. Psalm 69, you don't need to turn there this morning. I would encourage you to go back and look at it later, though. Psalm 69 is a psalm that has already been quoted by John in the Gospel of John in chapter 2, and he views it as a messianic psalm. So a psalm that has messianic implications. But here's what's fascinating about this. If you go back and read Psalm 69, it's not a prediction Of something that's going to happen to someone in the future. What is it? It's a psalm of David and it's a psalm where David is describing his own experience. He's talking about what's happening to him and in that psalm he is being hated by those who oppose him and oppose God and he's hated, and here's the kicker, without a cause. There's not a real reason, something that is tied to his character, to his own sin as to why they hate him. And so what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's picking up this language that David uses about his own experience, and he's identifying himself as the true and greater David. He's using what we would call typology here. David is a a type of the coming Messiah. And so what Jesus is saying is the life that he's living, the life of Jesus repeats the same pattern that happens in the life of David, but it doesn't just repeat the same pattern. It escalates in significance. It gets bigger and more profound and has more significance when it goes from David the true messiah and here's how it escalates in significance and this this typology and the escalation teaches us about the work of Jesus this isn't just a neat little trick where we see comparisons in the old and the new testament the bible is written this way purposefully and intentionally to instruct us concerning the work of Christ these are biblical hermeneutics that we're exercising here that help us to learn about Jesus So what do we learn? Well, we look at David and we see that David suffered without cause in this psalm and he prayed for deliverance and salvation from God. So what happens with Jesus? How does this escalate? Well, Jesus suffers without any cause at all, without any sin. And then he doesn't just pray for deliverance and salvation. He brings deliverance and salvation through his suffering from God to his people. Jesus comes into the world knowing full well that he will be hated to the point of death. Yet, rather than running from that persecution and suffering, he leans into it. He knows it's going to happen. It's all part of the plan. He leans into it. Why? For the sake of saving those who will believe in him. And that fulfills scripture and the expectation for the work that Messiah is going to do he suffers without a cause and brings salvation through that suffering now I want to make here a small application point for us from this before we move on in this passage all right it's really important that you see here that Jesus and David both suffered without a cause He spoke God's words, he did God's works, and he was hated for those things, okay? He came to bring love, grace, and salvation, and he was hated for that. Let's be careful to be hated for the right reasons, It's really easy to think that any time someone out in the world gets frustrated with a Christian, oh, it's persecution. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's not. There's an argument that I keep hearing right now among Christians that the stakes are so high and the culture is so deeply troubled that we as Christians have to do whatever it takes to win even if that means being immoral or hate-filled ourselves. And according to this, that is simply just worldly thinking. We're using the world's tactics to try to fight the world. It's not what Christ is calling us to here at all. And that's not how the New Testament understands the Christian's relationship to the world. Peter hits this on the head in his first epistle. And I want to read a couple passages to you here. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Further on. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, right? We're not just silent about things that need to be said and the truths that need to go forward and the gospel that needs to be proclaimed. We're ready to make a defense. We actively speak the truth. But notice what he says here. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It is possible, and there are some wonderful models of this out there in the world around us today. It is possible to speak the truth in grace and love and speak it boldly and speak it clearly without being immoral or being a jerk. How do we do that? Through Christ's help. And that's why he's giving us this passage, and this is our third certainty. There's a reassurance here, right? This is hard. This is not easy, but there's a reassurance here for us as we go out and bear witness in the hostile world around us. Christ provides help through the Spirit. Look at verses 26 and 27. But When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now Jesus has promised them the Spirit, given them details about that in chapter 14. He will do that more, but he explains here a little bit clearer, a little bit more in-depth, the Spirit's identity. We can't go too much into this. But notice what he says here, the language. The Spirit will be sent by Jesus from the Father and will proceed from the Father. Jesus comes from the Father, is begotten eternally, not created at any point in time, but is begotten eternally from the Father. But the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, In this gospel, Christ's coming from the Father, his sentness, let me say it that way, sentness from the Father has told us that Jesus is one with the Father, right? We've seen that over and over again in this gospel. Now we have Jesus saying that he and the Father are going to send one to his disciples. So at a minimum, what does this tell us about our ongoing relationship with God, and about the work of the Spirit. It tells us that God himself is with us and working in us through the Holy Spirit. This is a profound help for Christians as we go out into a hostile world and speak the truth and live according to Christ's example. The Spirit will testify to Christ in us and equip and enable us To do what? To testify about Christ as we bear witness in the world around us. Keep in mind, this is a hostile world. Jesus is not preparing us to isolate ourselves into little groups in caves somewhere. He's preparing us and equipping us and enabling us to go out and do the hard thing of living in the culture around us and speaking the truth in love. He's preparing us to be sent out as witnesses and witnesses to what? Christ, him and his work, not our own agenda, but him and his kingdom. But this is going to get hard at times and Christians all over the world experience this. Look at chapter 16, verses one to three. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. The worst thing that can happen to you is not suffering for your faith. That's not the worst thing that can happen to you. The worst thing that can happen to you is rejecting Christ because of the suffering and proving that you were never actually a follower of Christ in the first place. That's the worst thing. And that's why Jesus is speaking these truths to his disciples and preparing them. He even says here that many of those who cause this persecution actually think that they're serving God. They're doing it out of religious fervor and motivation. They think they're serving God, but ultimately, verse 3, they don't really know God. And so Jesus is doing all of this in order to prepare his disciples for what's coming. Look at verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. It's all about preparation here. Proper expectations for his disciples. Many of you know the name of John Piper, uh, who used to be a pastor and is still a writer and a theologian. Some of you, I'm sure, have benefited from his writing and from his speaking over the years, and I find him particularly inspiring and helpful on these issues of suffering and persecution. He was asked recently this question. How can American pastors begin to prepare the churches for persecution? All right, so that's the question. Make sure you got that. How can American pastors begin to prepare the churches for persecution? And I want to read you some of his answer. It's a little extended. My answer would be, you should have started a long time ago. Like, from your very first sermon when you came to your church. Fair enough. You must teach your people that they are not first Americans, but Christians. Christians are aliens and exiles on planet Earth. This world does not owe Christians anything and Christians should expect to suffer. We should preach these truths even when things are going as well as they can possibly go because hostility against Christianity is built into the nature of a fallen world. In a sense, I'm a little uncomfortable with painting the present moment as extraordinary and terrible so that it becomes the reason Christians need to be ready to suffer. From the get-go, and for 50 years, I want pastors to help Christians see that life is hard and that they are going to suffer. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, John 15, 20. This is plain biblical teaching. Therefore, suffering by persecution is not peculiar to America. All the world, all over the world, Christians are suffering persecution. In preaching and pastoring, I want to prepare martyrs. I want my people to go to the hardest places in the world. So my answer to how you preach, considering current persecution and pressure, is that you preach the sovereignty of God and that suffering is to be expected. This is the opposite of prosperity theology. The problem with prosperity theology is that it lacks a doctrine of suffering. Pastors, you want to build the capacity to suffer into your people. That suffering may be a child born without the ability to speak, or it may be persecution. No one knows in what ways Christians will suffer in their lifetimes. I think constantly narrating how bad things are can have an effect of making people angry and sowing seeds of bitterness. The last thing we want is for people to walk out of church on Sunday seething in anger at their culture. That's the dominant emotion they have. I want them thrilled with the sovereignty of God, thrilled that they're saved, thrilled that they have meaning in life rooted in the gospel, thrilled that no matter what happens in this world, they are going to be able to walk in the truth and joy. I think that's exactly the perspective that Jesus is building into his disciples here. He's honest with them. He's preparing them. It's going to be this way, but he's also sending them out into a hostile world to be faithful to him and to his cause. And that's what I want for my life, and that's what I want for our church body and our perspective on this as well. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for this this passage, and I pray that you would do the, the work in our hearts of equipping us of reframing our view of the culture around us, of ourselves, of our mission here, of our task here, to align more carefully with your word. Equip us for suffering. Help us to be bold. Help us to be witnesses as you call us to, and help us to do it in a way that reflects you in our character, in our attitudes, in our emotions, and our dispositions. We want Christ to be honored when we suffer. We want Christ to be honored as the truth is proclaimed. Give us boldness, give us courage, give us conviction that we need and give us the help that we need through the Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.